Hey everyone, it's Jordan. This episode of the Ruminant Podcast asks the question, so what do you do for work in the winter? For many of you, it's farming, but for many of you, it's not. And for a subset of that group, the specific answer is, not a whole heck of a lot. Got any ideas? Well, I do, as a matter of fact. After podcast collaborator Scott Humphreys came up with the idea for this episode, I asked all of you to write me about what you do in winter. What follows are, I don't know, five or six ideas. Stay tuned. This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant Podcast and blog wonders what good farming looks like and aims to help farmers and gardeners share insights with each other. At theruminant.ca, you'll find show notes for each episode of the podcast, as well as the odd essay, book review, and photo-based blog post. You can email me, editor at theruminant.ca, I'm at ruminantblog on Twitter, or search The Ruminant on Facebook. Okay, on with the show. All right, so first up, we have Jeff Cooper. Jeff's from Kansas, and he suggested that for people in northern latitudes, there may be some options getting work in snow removal. Here's our conversation. Uh, awesome, Jeff. Okay, I'll jump right into it, just in case uh, you're pressed for time here. So we're going to talk about your winter work idea, uh, which is using a snowplow, uh, which I thought was a, it was a great idea. I'm really glad you shared it. But um, first of all, so when sure. you wrote me, you mentioned what you were thinking is that um, if you're a farmer in a northern climate that gets snow and you have a three-quarter ton or one ton pickup truck anyway, uh, you know, you could you could invest in a plow for the front of the truck and then have an opportunity to make some winter income that way. Um, Absolutely. Right. Yes. So do you have a rough sense of what it costs to get a plow for uh, a big pickup truck? Used. Um, in fact, I was just looking online the other day. Uh, it looks like around here used uh, between two and five thousand dollars. Um. Now you're going to have to install it. Um, both of my trucks I have bought with plows on them, um, and that's actually, you know, a pretty good way to go. Um, you know, since I was already in the business, you know, I, I'm, if I'm looking for a truck, I'm looking for one with a plow on it. Ah, uh, okay, okay. But um, you know, snow plows can be had for at least in this part of the world. I'd say between. You know, good used ones between two and three thirty-five hundred dollars. Um, up north, I we buy some stuff from up north. Uh, you know, and I say up north, I mean like Nebraska. <laughs> but uh, you know, it seems like this. You know, the further north you go, the more um, you know common the snow equipment is. So you know, it seems like it's lower priced and that sort of thing. Just a supply and demand kind of thing. Um, there's more plows. There's more trucks with plows up in that country. Okay. Uh, another thing I thought about, and I don't want to just run over here, but um, another thing I thought about, you know, you talked about the BCS a lot in your um, in your podcast. Don't they have a, a snow um, blower attached they, for they that? They do. Maybe a blade? They do. They have, uh, they have a snow blower for sure, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if you can get a blade as well. Uh, so I'll finish your thought. You're thinking if you were going to do smaller scale snow removal and you owned a BCS, then there's maybe an opportunity just to haul that thing around and do some removal for people. Without a doubt. That is, I mean, I love that kind of interchangeability. You know, it's like, like that's kind of the thing with us. Like, okay, we've got these big heavy trucks. Um, you know, 
let's find a way to use them in the wintertime. I mean, that's essentially what it comes down to. Same thing with, with mowers. I've got a, you know, a four-foot blade that I put on a, on a, you know, ZPR mower. We plow with that. Same thing. We don't have a skid steer anymore, but we did. Uh, you know, same thing. All this stuff that you need to have anyway, um, might as well be getting some income out of it in the wintertime. I mean, that's my thought on it. Um, Okay, Jeff. Well, look, no one's ever, this. The next question is totally going to be re, the answer is regionally based, and no one's going to hold it against you if uh, if they find differently in their region. But can you give me an idea in your region during a good winter of snow what what you can make on a job? Like, you know, what what is what is the going rate for some for snow removal? Let's just talk about the plow on the truck since that's what you're you know sure. more about. I charge the same for trucks with plows and skid steers. Um, $135 an hour per piece. So I only, I go out with two. Uh, I never ever go out with one. Um, just because you can have breakdowns. I mean, since I, since I have these properties that are depending on me, I, I have to have backups and, you know, we have to get it done on deadline. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I but, should, I should, yeah. I should, I should say, cause you mentioned in your email to me, through your landscaping business, you already have pre-existing relationships with property managers and owners. And so you naturally, yeah. they naturally asked you to do some winter maintenance like that. So you'd be, you'd yeah. be, you'd be coming out to, to large uh, snow removal situations. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We don't have any seasonal contracts. Some people in the snow business do that where you get paid X amount to, take care of the property no matter what happens. yeah right and if it's a if it's a heavy snow year it costs you more and if it's a light snow year you're laughing exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly so we don't have any of that uh but we have a mixture of hourly rate and and flat rate um yeah. and that's to me a good way to go you know you're sort of diversified that way uh just real quick uh also on the hand we charge uh 50 to 60 dollars an hour on the hand shoveling and the snowblower work so i if, if that would help people with their you know with their bcs pricing um you know that's where we are down here i i don't i don't have any idea what it would be like somewhere else but that's that gets us competitive around here and i would i would and jordan another idea i had started just no go for it jeff <laughs> uh a good way, like let's say someone like you or someone that had a, you know, a small-scale farming operation, you've got a BCS, you're looking for a way to make some winter income. I would be looking for a landscaper who needs some help and sub on with them. That would be a great way to get started. Um, like currently, I am looking for someone to take my houses over uh. because I had a guy who was a painting contractor you know, he's not a competitor. Um, but what I'm worried about is another landscaper being on the property, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, right, of course. Start. Yeah. Uh, getting, getting, their so, foot, getting their foot in the door by, by, by taking exactly. over the contracts that you don't want anymore. I get it, yeah. This is a cutthroat business, man. And it's, you know, I mean, we're all sort of friends and acquaintances. You know, I'm in a town of 50,000, so, you know, everybody kind of knows everybody. But they won't hesitate to split your throat to get to get the contract. <laughs> I mean, it is it is cutthroat, man. So you got to be really careful. 
Yeah. To, you know, who you're bringing on. And uh, that's actually how I got a lot of my commercial um, work is I'm subbed on with an irrigation contractor that does all my irrigation work. And in turn, you know, he subs me to do snow work. I do some mowing for him. I do some other, you know, land, landscape install stuff, whatever. So, I mean, to, to hook on with another landscaper or to hook on with a landscaper would be a great way for, you know, a, a small-scale farmer to get uh, involved in it. And you'd be solving someone's problem, I can almost guarantee it. Yeah, right. And so so if, if I came to you with my BCS and you knew I was a farmer so that I'm not going to be competing with you for landscaping contracts and I had the BCS and you were, you'd just be handing me jobs and, and it's mutually beneficial. Yeah. yeah. You'd be hired right away. I wish you were here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got I to get, get, get the snowblower first. I don't own it yet, but... Uh, <laughs> Right. That's that's step one. Step two is move to Kansas, but uh, I'll let you know when that happens. <laughs> All so right. anyway, I mean that's the gist of it. You know, uh, uh, you know, it's all about solving somebody's problems. Snow removal is is a big problem for people. Yeah, that's a it's a great point. It's a great point. Um, well, Jeff, thank you. Before before we wrap up, you uh, you bought a farm. That's a new venture for you. And so I just want you, to, at the very least, tell me the name of your farm or farm-to-be if it's not started yet. <laughs> you know, Jordan, that is really interesting. Um, we're, we're thinking of the name right now. Okay. Um, it, you know, I didn't want to name it. Um, I'm not really into that kind of thing. But my wife, you know, is set on it and i think it's important from a branding perspective and i'll tell you what jeff <clears throat> let's have some fun it, whenever you get that farm name figured out get a hold of me i will record you saying the name and i will randomly insert it into a podcast episode with no explanation whatsoever uh and anyone who listened to this episode will know will know will know it uh how's that sound? that's cool all right uh thanks so much for your work on this and you know well, it means a lot. All right. So, option one, if you don't have enough work in the winter, maybe blow snow. But if you don't like that idea, well, why don't you listen to Jim Riddle? You'll recognize Jim's voice from episode 61. He's the farmer who talked to me about his mostly blue fruits perennial fruit farm. And he also talked to me about the prospects of being an organic farming verification officer. Here's our conversation. Jim Riddle... I'm just wondering, you have so much experience with organic inspection and training inspectors and, and setting standards and the, and the like, and I'm just wondering whether you think becoming an inspector is a suitable um, part-time job to pair with, with farming. Yeah, well, and I was an organic inspector for 20 years, and, and like you said, helped train inspectors and know a lot of inspectors out there, and um I, well, as far as mixing that with a farming occupation, uh, it depends on the type of farm and the amount of workload, attention, you know, because success in farming is based on timing. You need to act when a crop needs cultivated or a crop needs planted or harvested or whatever. You need to be there at that time, especially if you're doing, you know, fresh type things. Or if you have livestock and animals, you need to keep an eye on things. So um, that's a very demanding profession to begin with. Um, 
And so organic crop inspections need to occur during the growing season when the crops can be observed. And so if you're doing organic produce as a, you know, a farmer, and then you're doing inspections of other organic farms, that can be a conflict that takes you away during the critical moments. When you're out looking at somebody else's clean fields, but the weeds are growing at home, and you get a break in the weather where you should be cultivating, um, uh, that, that can uh, uh, you know, really uh, detract from your farming operation. Um, that said, if you have enough certified organic operations within, say, dri- you know, a driving distance, 100 miles or something, where you can get away and you can, you know, do inspections two, three days a week and still be able to manage your farming operation, um, you know, that can work out. And if you get qualified, trained to do livestock inspections, those typically can occur, you know, a little more flexibility in terms of the timing of the year. And if you go beyond that and get trained to do processing operations, those can happen any time of year. And so that can actually be, you know, pretty good uh, uh, revenue, um, a good winter income if you're qualified and have the comfort level with food processing. And so, you know, it it is a different skill set, but it can be very complimentary. Uh, But if, you know, it depends on the type of farming operation. If you're doing, you know, cash grains and you have some big blocks of time available during the growing season and you're not putting up hay, which is very time sensitive, you know, that can be a good mix. So, Jim, what, uh, you know, can you give me a sense of what it costs uh, financially and also in terms of time to become an inspector? Well, the training, which uh, uh, a person would go to IOIA.net to find out the schedule and the costs. But there are inspector trainings uh, around North America, different times of year, different locations, and different uh, uh, levels. So if you're new to it, you'd really be looking for the basic organic farm inspector training. And those are typically, uh, I believe, a four-day course in the neighborhood of $1,200. Uh, uh, you know, so a significant um, investment, but not a huge amount of time. Um, and for the returns, it actually is a pretty good investment because, well, your next step, once you're trained successfully and pass the test and everything, um, then you would accompany a veteran and experienced inspector in some kind of a mentorship or apprenticeship and, you know, start working your way into it. But then, you know, eventually you should be looking at the potential of three to $500 a day. Um, um, for inspection services and doing uh, anywhere from one to no more than three inspections in a day. I, I, it's just a lot of attention to detail and, uh, you know, uh, you can't rush through things. You need to really be observant. And I imagine if you're going to consider this, you have to be someone who is comfortable with, with being detail-oriented and, and being okay with lots of paperwork. 
Right, right. Yeah, there's, you know, you need to be comfortable with the computer, with paperwork, and be self-directed because, you know, there's not somebody looking over your shoulder. You've got to really follow through and get that report turned around in a, you know, a good, timely manner um, and, you know, you know, maintain your own schedule. So you need to be good at managing your own business affairs as well as uh, reviewing other people's business affairs. And, you know, the, sadly, too much of the time is spent looking at records. You're not out in the field or looking at the equipment near as much because that's what's interesting and fun, and that's where the farmer opens up and tells stories. You're only there a few hours one day of the year, and it's up to the records to verify that somebody's complying with the organic regulations all those other days. And uh, last question, Jim. I know I know every region's different, but in, in generally speaking, is there is there demand for new for new inspectors at this time in in North America? Well, um, we certainly haven't seen the growth of organic farming that we'd like to see, just because uh, in the U.S. the government programs really reward farmers for staying conventional. You're, there's disincentives for going organic, uh, and uh, but. There still is a growth, and now with low conventional prices for both dairy and uh, uh, cash grains, there's more and more farmers who are looking at the organic option. And if you're in an area with, you know, kind of a hotbed of organic producers, the demand, um, you know, and the work availability possibilities, uh, I think, are pretty strong. But I'd really encourage anyone looking at it to contact the major organic certification agencies that operate in the area that you're willing to travel and say, are you looking for inspectors? What kind of inspectors? You know, do you need livestock inspectors in your area? Um, and do the homework before you invest the time and money into taking the training to at least have a chance that, uh, yeah, there is an interest, there is an opportunity. Jim Riddle, thanks so much. Yeah, well, thank you. All right, so now you're going to hear from a listener from Minnesota called Brooke. Sort of. Brooke submitted an idea, but she didn't want to be recorded for the episode, so I asked Google Translator to fill in for her. Here you go. I just got through the intro to your episode 55, where you mentioned working on an off-season episode. One thing that came to mind for me was an off-season job that I work that is a great complement to my farm work part-time substitute paraprofessional at the local schools. This is a great option for me because it is flexible, meaningful, and well-paid. I select the sub-shifts that I want and get a little extra income in the off-season. This complements my winter farm planning and research work and other part-time job very well. This is a job that is very needed in most communities and so meaningful to the kids we work with. I am not sure what the minimum requirement for schooling is, but a background check is required. I have a bachelor's degree. In my district I have a website I can look on to see when subs are needed. From this I can select the shifts that work into my schedule. I learned recently that in some districts subs are on call. This is a great paying seasonal job for me that is needed and meaningful. As a para we are working with special needs kids such as autism and other learning disabilities. At times I have also subbed in the lunchroom or as a playground aide. 
which tend to be shorter shifts. Substitute teaching is also a possibility, even without a degree in teaching. I believe a bachelor's degree and a license is required for that. My year-round part-time job is for a Unitarian church. This is nice because we don't hold services for two months in the summer, and my workload lightens during that time. Brooke, thank you. Very well spoken, if a little monotone. So at this point, I wouldn't mind sharing an insight of my own, although I'm not going to talk about the specific work I do in winter, at least not yet. But one thing that I've come to appreciate over the course of five years is that if I'm going to be serious about making some winter income that isn't from farming, you need to know when to pull the cord on your actual farming season. I think this is particularly relevant as a veggie grower. For the first few years of my business, I tried to wrangle every last dollar out of the garden, which took me into generally, I don't know, mid to late November before I was actually fully winterizing the garden and turning my back on it. And that becomes problematic because it's usually by the end of January or certainly by mid-February that I have to be in the nursery again. So if I'm seriously want to think about making some money in the off-season, that doesn't really give me enough time to kind of get anything done and, and make that money. So I've learned to just let some of the last bits of income go in the garden. This year, I probably left, I don't know, maybe $2,000 in the garden, but it's $2,000 that I would have had to spend a whole bunch of time trying to get, selling it in small amounts of, I don't know, one and two and $300 at a time. It's it's early yet, we're, we're now only about, uh, I don't know, five weeks since I, I shut down the garden, but no regrets so far. And so I would just, I would strongly suggest that if you wanna be serious about making some money in the winter, think about just, just, just not worrying about that last couple thousand or thousand or whatever it is, because it may mean that by shutting down early enough, you'll be able to turn your attention properly to your winter work and actually make more money in the long run. Okay, so now we're gonna hear from a listener called Seth Stallings, who got a hold of me to tell me about the gardening program that he runs in conjunction with some of the public schools in his area. Here's our conversation. Um, great. Well, Seth, uh, I noticed at the start you mentioned that you have separate work as a, a garden manager for a school. That's probably really seems like really compatible in some ways with with having a farm. Um, so could you just briefly describe that position as a garden manager with a school? Yeah, uh, roughly it's, I have the same contract as a teacher, so it's about 220 days, which gives me um, about eight weeks off a year. Um, unfortunately, I don't take those eight weeks off uh, during the summer because uh, even though we, our school, we're a charter school, we have a modified schedule. So our students are only gone six weeks during the summer. So they're gone of all of June and half of July. Um, so usually, you know, we're getting stuff started in the spring, uh, students are getting a, like a, a summer garden started. And so I stick around to maintain everything while the students are away. And, uh, then when they come back, you know, we, we pick things up again. So I take some time off during the summer. Like normally I work Monday, Wednesday, Friday at the school. Um, but, and then I usually just take all my time off during the winter and catch up on farm projects like as I am able to kind of thing. So in the last two years, our winter project has been having a baby. So that's, uh, that's, uh, kind of our, our winter thing right now. So, 
Right. Okay. So, so this, this, this charter school, does that, is it a private or public school? It's a public school. And there's just a, in public schools in Oklahoma, is it common for these gardening programs to exist? No, we're one of the few. Um, the, the school is in down in South Oklahoma city. Uh, we have about three acre site total. And then I have about one acre that, you know, I have uh, plowed up and, most of it's in cover crops, and then, but I'm working on transitioning it to a permanent bed kind of system, uh, and then breaking it down into kind of like quarter acre sections that we use. Um, this fall, I've had 205 sixth graders coming out for an hour. Um, well, it's broken down into eight classes, so one class comes for an hour each morning um, during the week to do a fall garden kind of thing. So. So, okay, so essentially with this job, though, you're given, you're essentially run a, a curriculum through the school year where these different, th- there's different classes that come for one hour a week to, to learn about gardening and, and do some gardening and farming. Correct. And then I also uh, kind of like, I do some kind of all my own farming there. Well, that's not a good way to say it. Uh, my job is, it also includes raising food for our cafeterias. So I'm kind of a teacher farmer and then a farmer together if that makes sense yeah i'm wondering do you have a teaching education or certificate or or was it enough for the school that you were just experienced with farming and gardening it it was just enough for the school that i had experience my i have a bachelor's degree in anthropology so not exactly related but uh i guess it was close enough yeah. Okay. So, so Seth, um, we're almost done. I, I just, I'm really curious to know, it, was this just a lucky break for you? Is this a one in a, like a very rare job to be able to score? Or do you think other farmers might be able to find positions like this or even encourage schools to create positions like this? Um, I think both. I think I'm really lucky to have this job. It just happened. I mean, it just kind of happened that they had a relationship with the superintendent of the school and I was just there on, happened to be there for some meetings and I got hired and I didn't even put in an application or anything. So it was kind of rare in that sense, but also I think more and more schools are becoming aware of this. And um, I'm really fortunate in the fact that our, our board and our superintendent is like, 100 percent behind it and actually has funding like they did the legwork to get funding for my position um so they pay me really well uh, actually for this type of work like i'm making like 16 dollars an hour and they're paying my insurance as a part-time worker so like i can't complain at all for the the type of flexibility i get i guess it really varies and really depends on what the administration looks like um so i'm really fortunate i guess and to okay. have that so just based on whatever knowledge of this of school systems in general that you have how would you where would you encourage a farmer to start who was going to look into whether something like this could exist or could be created in their school district where would where would a starting point be who would who in the who in your school district would you approach would you go after the superintendent would that be the first place to go uh Potentially. I, I mean, there's a, I met a guy the other day. Um, he is a science teacher at a school in North Oklahoma City, and he has done some of the legwork to, like, um, 
reach out to parents and say, hey, you know, like I want to start including some gardening in my science classes and he teaches high school and he's got parent support. So I guess you could go about it several different ways. You could find, maybe approach any science teachers um, that, um, you know, are interested in, in including that in their curriculum. Because um, I think a lot of administrators, they want to see a curriculum connection. And so maybe start with a teacher or start with parents. Uh, yeah, if you want to get the parents excited about it, I think the two ways to convince administrators that uh, things are a good idea are convince the parents and then have the parents put pressure on administrators or, uh, you know, demonstrate that a garden is a really useful curriculum tool. Um, so I think, you know, and find a, a sympathetic teacher that would want to work with you to include include that in their curriculum um, and then you can really start justifying it and then or even you can approach it from the more food service side if you've got a, a sympathetic food service provider that would love to start incorporating local food the whole kind of farm to school um, kind of stuff that 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 could be like a good way to approach it too um, so yeah I mean it, it, it as far as and most school programs are volunteer based, and I think that really has affects their longevity. Um, I'm in my third year there, um, and I think just now, because I've been there and I've been paid, I've been able to forge a lot of relationships with like uh, Oklahoma State Extension and Master Gardeners, and a lot of these kind of bigger name groups that do ag across the state are starting to take notice of us because we've been here three years and we're starting to make progress and 200 kids are coming out into the garden and they raised $2,000 and we've gotten grants. And so now the whole university system is starting to give us money to do different things and, and actually do legwork for us that we're not having to do. So um, I don't know, maybe we're just, I'm just really fortunate, but I think, the sympathetic administration and actually paying me to do this job has been really key. Um, and it was really good for me because I basically got to start a farm from nothing and get paid to do it and make all my mistakes. So now that I'm, so I'm getting ready to kind of start my own vegetable venture and add that onto the pasture poultry. So I've, I've already started a vegetable farm and now I get to do it again. (laughs) Well, that's great, Seth. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, Seth, what, yep. what's your last name? Uh, Stallings. All right, Seth Stallings from Amistad Farm in Oklahoma. Uh, thank you so much, and and uh, yeah, um, well, thanks very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for the podcast. I really enjoy it. Okay, so the last submission came from Tracy, who farms in Squamish, British Columbia. Tracy raises animals on her farm, and she also t- helps take care of them at a local vet hospital. And she told me a bit about that. Okay, so Tracy Robertson, thanks a lot for, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Tracy, what's the name of your farm? Uh, Stony Mountain Farm. And what are you doing there? Um, I raise um, all free range, so completely outdoors. Um, lane hens, uh, broiler chickens, um, turkeys, um, and large black um, heritage pigs, as well as I have uh, four Sonnen Angora goats. Cool. That's awesome. And yeah. uh, you 
wrote me because I'm putting this episode together on winter work or, or pairing other types of work with farming to, to make ends meet or to fill out your your uh, your your annual work schedule. What are what, what are you doing? What have you paired with uh, with your farming? Um, I am a registered animal health technologist at um, a local veterinary hospital, um, which I've been doing for seven years now, pretty much the same time that I've been farming. That's really cool. I imagine there's a kind of some overlap between the two jobs. I mean, in terms of in terms of um, what you're learning at the clin- at, at the vet- at the veterinary hospital and what you're doing on your farm. Totally. Um, most of my stuff that I do at my veterinary hospital is small animal, but um, throughout school I learned about large animal, and they kind of go hand in hand, recognizing different signs of anything that's happening and. Plus, my best friend is a veterinarian, so I can pick her brain all the time. <laughs> okay, that's 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 really cool. So, so <laughs> let's um let's start with simple. What is a what is an animal health technologist? What can you can you dumb that down for a dumb guy? Uh, yeah, no, I'm basically in human medicine. The equivalent would be I wear many different hats, but um. Uh, it's kind of like a registered nurse, but for animals. Um, but I also take x-rays, do lab work, take blood. Um, I'm an anesthesiologist. If, like, I know how to monitor anesthetic. I put animals under anesthetic. I wake them up. I take care of critical, um, critically ill animals. Um, yeah, everything that could could happen in a vet hospital deal with emergencies anything like that okay so so clearly clearly one requirement is that you have to love animals uh what about the education what does it take to become to to get to 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 be able to get that job um so i did a three-year distance education program offered through thompson rivers university out of kamloops yeah so it's it's um, learning all aspects of veterinary care, as well as some large animal and um, lab animal um, as well. Okay, so you're in my region of British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, and specifically, Squamish is situated very near a very large city of Vancouver, uh, and it's it's a decent-sized little city in itself. Mm-hmm. But, so I realize that, that every region is going to differ, but what were the job prospects like? Were you confident from the get-go that you'd be able to find something at a veterinary hospital? It, everything kind of fell into fell into place for me after our dog had passed away. There was another dog at my vet clinic that was a bottle baby. He'd been raised from a day old by one of the girls who's now one of my coworkers, and I ended up adopting him. So then I'd always my vet clinic I'd always gone to. So then when they heard that I was thinking about doing a career change, they approached me and said that they would support me through school because part of the program through Thompson Rivers um, is you have to work at a vet clinic and you have to have a veterinarian sign on to support you through the um, training. So my vet, just like they, the whole practice um, kind of embraced me and helped me through it. So it's, and including, were you experience. were you were you working there in a limited capacity while you were doing the school, or do you mean support you just like kind of mentoring you? No, mentoring, but I also worked there forty hours a week. Oh wow! Well, that's <laughs> yeah, really, that's so. cool though. So then you did know. I mean, you you one way or the other. Well, it just sounds like this is a good way for someone if they're considering this is to to find out to go and find out from the veterinary hospitals around first. 
yeah. if 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 they if they're you know if they're looking if if they're if they would be supportive of the notion of someone going to school so that they can yeah. actually work for them. Yeah, and you definitely want to know that this is a field you want to go into because it, there is um, ups and downs as with any, and and you know I experience it on my farm as well. Um, that uh, you know emotionally and all of that. So they always recommend, and anytime someone approaches me about the career, I'm always like, you really want to know it's something you want to do, and because um, you just need to make sure that you can deal with certain aspects of it uh well if you don't mind my asking what what if you, you don't i don't know if you want to say the exact amount you make but like what can an animal technologist make is there a range you can share with me what what can someone expect to make um i don't really know the range um it's not anywhere near as what someone would make in human medicine mm-hmm. um i think the range is usually like 35 to forty-five thousand a year kind of thing okay um so um, right, but okay, but still um, meaningful work at a at a half decent uh, yeah wage yeah okay yeah uh, cool and then I guess the, one of the last questions is how compatible has it been to with farming I mean so how are you structuring like how much are you working at the at the hospital and and how easy is it to balance with what you're doing on the farm um I do have to cut my hours back during the summer months just because that's when I do the most amount of raising um because like raising all the chickens and turkeys outdoors i can't do it during the winter time um i just with the wet coast i just don't think that they would really want to be outside Mm -hmm. (laughs) during that time um so in the summer i usually like this year i worked about 20 22 hours a week um and right now i've increased my hours for the winter and i'm working about 30 to 40 um, hours a week, um, depending. Like, the next two I'm doing about 50 because we're short-staffed. <laughs> so, okay, so I just want to get really quickly back to the demand for the technologist position because you had a really great arrangement headed into even just doing the schooling. Yeah. Um, in general, I mean, within your profession, is the sense that there's too many technologists in your region, no, not enough? No, I think there's or? always people. They're always looking. Like, there's always vacancies. Um, for it and you don't have to like there's if you're wanting to work with animals that you don't want to do like the technologist side you can also become a vet assistant you do more reception but you learn like the aspects of a vet hospital so Mm -hmm. they're 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 always in demand and with how animals are becoming more family members and important family members people are wanting like ultimate care for them and as we learn more about preventative care and stuff it just seems people are paying more attention to their pets so um yeah it's definitely a field that there's a lot of a lot of demand for people in it cool mm-hmm. well tracy robertson of stony mountain farm thanks a lot for sharing this will be i think really uh really helpful for the listenership really good <laughs> <laughs> hey it's jordan so i was at a dinner last night and i met a veterinarian from uh, a local city around me Kelowna. And because of my chat with Tracy, I asked him a couple questions about animal technologists. And he told me that here, just as Tracy said is the case in a lot of places, there's a huge demand for technologists. 
He also told me that the pay around here in a smaller interior city in British Columbia is a little bit lower than Tracy suggested, which I imagine differs from region to region. But around here, technologists get paid around 15 to $20 an hour. So not in the stratosphere, but not too bad if you're otherwise wanting for winter work. The other thing my conversation with the veterinarian last night reminded me is that I've run into a couple people that have suggested that another uh, pretty good source of income that I think could be uh, worked around your farming is to become an animal cremator. So I have nothing else to say about that, but that apparently there's only one game in town doing that and then it's a highly needed service and that if you've got the stomach for it and perhaps are willing to invest in some infrastructure, uh, that could be a very good source of income that could probably easily be worked around your farm work. So that about does it. Thanks again to everyone who contributed. Now, it occurred to me that after asking all of you to submit ideas for this episode, I should probably do the same. But since I don't really want to talk about myself in the first person, you probably don't want to hear me talk about myself in the first person any more than I have to, I typed up a classified ad instead. It'll give you the gist. Help Wanted. The universe is currently seeking an experienced off-season veggie grower to fill the position of Winter Jordan Marr. This is a four-month contract involving some loosely or even ill-defined combination of crop planning for next season, hosting a poorly recorded podcast, paid administration of a small nonprofit farm apprenticeship organization, going for beers in the middle of the day with your winemaker friend because what the hell you have the time, spending the rest of the day feeling guilty about that, both in terms of the calories you didn't need, fatty, and the time not spent producing a better podcast or, you know, grooming or just... I don't know, finally figuring out what to sell in that online store you keep telling yourself you're going to start. Key responsibilities include 1. Cooking bitchin' meals for your wife, who really does work hard in the winter. 2. Apropos of number 1, coming up with fresh recipes that combine the onions, carrots, beets, and cabbage that your root cellar is stacked to the tits with, or, better yet, recipes that fool your wife into thinking said ingredients are not present, which definitely rules out making slaw again. 3. Striving to attribute your failure to realize your ambitions to household chores and feeding the horses rather than the truth, which is that you read way too much crap online. 4. Almost ruining what should be a really enjoyable part of the year due to your general neuroses and your tendency to get all existential as soon as you have idle time. But then having a genuine moment of clarity sometime in November in which you realize that your life is actually pretty good, things are going well, and that you're going to be just fine. Key benefits include emails from your listeners, which are gratifying. Compensation is commensurate with experience, so pretty low. Please note that we are an equal opportunity employer and do not discriminate against any race, ethnicity, religion, or gender. That said, preference will be given to bearded, slightly chubby white guys whose workout playlists include Holly Holy by Neil Diamond and Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe, but who would rather nobody know about that. Potential applicants can send inquiries to editor at the ruminant.ca. <laughs> okay it's really over folks that's really the end of the episode i hope you enjoyed it and i will just very quickly remind you that i'd love to receive an email from you outlining an insight that you made on your farm this year something that you figured out that you think other farmers would want to know about why not record it on a voice memo on your smartphone and then just email it to me editor at the ruminant.ca and if it sounds good i'll put it on a podcast or if i need to talk to you about it i'll line up a time to phone you and we'll record a new conversation thanks for listening and i will talk to you next week
honey, I've got a plan to make our final escape. All we'll need is each other, a hundred dollars, and maybe a roll of duct tape. Then we'll run right outside of the city's reaches. We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches. We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be. trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees. 